we're gonna we're gonna talk about and think about some some um, big epic ideas today. And we're gonna pile. I'm telling you from the start, we're gonna pile too much in to the day, but uh, I couldn't figure out what to cut out. Um, we're uh, returning to a series of conversations that we've been having over the course of really this whole year. We've been walking our way through uh, the Old Testament book of Exodus. And we've called this series of conversations Rescued, because that's what happened. Uh, God rescued, remarkably, he rescued uh, a, a group of, a, a huge uh, collection of tribes of slaves from the most powerful nation in the world. And we're returning to it uh, here in the summer just for two weeks as we set up what is the climax of the first part of this story. So this week and next week, we're going to hear about how <clears throat> the slaves actually went free. What, 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 at the very end, what happened. Uh, today is just a short little passage. We're doing uh, Exodus chapter 11, but it's only 10 verses. And, and Exodus chapter 11 is part of Moses' last conversation with Pharaoh. So we'll begin with the last two or three verses of chapter 10 to set up the context and, and all of this happens at the same time. This is, again, this is Moses' last conversation with Pharaoh. But today's passage not only moves the story along, but it kind of uh, crunches down some of the ideas that have been woven throughout these first chapters and will be throughout the story of Exodus. P.S. are woven throughout the entire story of the Bible. And uh, today we're going we're gonna to drop back to the 10,000 foot view and we're going to look at one of what some of those principles are. So we're going to be asking a really simple question today, what is God like? <laughs> I'm really glad that uh, uh, the worship team sang a couple of those songs about the goodness of God and I, I felt a sense of that. I don't know if you all did, but especially that last song. Uh, Jordan was singing, God is so good. Some of you are old enough to have experienced this as well. But early in um, my walk with Christ, uh, that was a little chorus that was sung by people, God is so good. And I felt the reminiscence of that. I felt the goodness of God echoing across my life. And I look at the book of Exodus and I realize God, he has been he has been doing the same thing. His fingerprints, his footprints have echoed across all generations. So today we're going to back up and take a look at that. We're going to talk about five, apologies in advance, five titanic truths about God. And they really spill out of this short little passage we're talking about today and kind of summary of the whole story that we've uh, hit so far. Before we jump in, let's say a word of prayer. Father, you are so good, you have been good to us, physically, uh, emotionally, blessing us with your presence, making us, enabling us, equipping us to be more and more able to love like Jesus. We're so thankful. Uh, we ask this morning that you would continue to do that work in, in small ways and in large. We give you permission Speak to our hearts. Father, if there's any of us this morning who need to be reminded of your, your goodness and your power, your involvement in our lives, then please remind us. And for those of us, Lord, who need to hear that and feel that for the first time, we pray that you would do that work today. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. All right. Uh, almost every week we come here to, at Gateway. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Uh, we come here to rehearse these truths, and let me tell you why. So today, we get an opportunity first, before we jump into it, let's talk about why we do this. Uh, A.W. Tozer, a great author and theologian from a couple of generations ago, he wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. I try to read this book like every three years. Tozer says this in the introduction, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And then he goes on and explains that to a degree. Listen, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Don't lose that. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. What he's saying is that our character and our values flow in the direction of our mental image of God. They are heavily influenced by the current of our view of God. A few weeks ago, Diane and I were at the beach. I don't know if I've mentioned that. And uh, one day that we were out at the beach, we were sitting in our chairs watching the waves. Current was particularly strong this day. And we had flashbacks to our own children when they were little. We watched one mother who was by herself on the beach, completely exasperated and frustrated as her boys were riding waves on, you know, boogie boards. And the current was taking them you know, every time they rode a wave in, they're, they're clueless. Woo! Riding a wave in. They, they've moved 20 yards down the beach. They run straight back in, move another 20 yards down the beach, straight back in, another 20 yards down the beach. And every 10 minutes, she's wagging her finger. We knew their names uh, within about 15 minutes. Yelling at them, come back! I'm making get out of the water, walk back, because the current was constantly dragging them, moving them down the beach. Our mental image of God. What we think about God does that same thing to our character, to our actions, to our attitudes. Our soul is shaped by our mental image of God. So, uh, what is God like? Let's get a snapshot this morning. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 10, verses 27 through uh, the end of chapter 11. Again, this sets up... We're at the uh, end of the, the ninth plague, and it's a plague of darkness. And Pharaoh and Moses are talking, and then that leads into uh, Moses' warning about what's coming. So uh, the end of Exodus 10 and Exodus chapter 11. And if you would, let's go old school and stand out of reverence uh, with me for God's word. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he would not let them go. And if you have not been with us and you don't know the story, repeatedly Moses has gone to Pharaoh and said, let the people go. If you don't, this is going to happen nine times. And Pharaoh has said no. And then nine times there's been a minor irritation to catastrophe. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. On the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, all right, as you say. 
I will not see your face again. Again, this is all part of that same dialogue in and around it. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt afterward. He will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, he's talking to Pharaoh, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. I, the Lord, by the way, will go out in the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all of the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all of the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But, Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. He's telling him what's going to happen when he delivers that speech. We're going back in time for a parenthesis. Pharaoh will not listen to you. That my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. All right, you may be seated. So from this passage, we learn five titanic truths about God. Uh, look, they, again, these are not new ideas. Uh, we, they've been woven throughout uh, the whole story. I trust for most of you throughout your lives. But today, let's review. Titanic truth number one, God is involved in our lives. Verse one said, now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh. Verse 4, so Moses said, this is what the Lord says about midnight. I will go out, go throughout the land of Egypt. Throughout this whole story and in our passage, God was doing stuff, amazing stuff, directly intervening in human affairs. These are the things that God did. God called Moses out of Midian to return and lead this Uh, rescue operation. God provided Moses with confidence and and signs to, to accompany him when he went. God instructed Moses when and how to talk to Pharaoh. And with each of the now 10 plagues, God acted. God was involved. Our God is involved in our lives. So we noted several weeks ago when we were uh, earlier in this con- rescued conversation, we talked one week about how there have been many attempts to offer 
natural explanations for the plagues, you know, the normal weather occurrences or normal occurrences in the topography of Egypt. And some of those attempts make some sense in part. They, they have some things to recommend them to us, but ultimately, this is the hand of God. And why do I say that? For many reasons. We went over this a few weeks ago, but let me add one more final one because of this 10th plague, the death of all firstborns. Even if we accept the natural explanations, and they aren't completely satisfying, but even if we accept them through the first nine plagues, this tenth plague doesn't allow anything like a natural explanation. This is the hand of God intervening in human affairs. Our God is involved in our lives. Titanic truth number two, God is not like us. Now look, this one is not obvious from this short chapter, this uh, from this text, but it's behind everything we've read so far in, e in Exodus, and it's behind this as well. God is not like us. He told Moses these incredible things that he was going to do, things that defy natural explanation, things outside of the bounds of, of uh, normal and natural conditions, and then he did them. We can't operate that way. He told Moses what Pharaoh was going to be feeling and how Pharaoh would respond, and in each case it worked out exactly the way God explained. We can't do that. God is not like us. You know, Jesus hinted at this same idea when he told his followers and us, God is spirit. He meant that in part as a way of differentiating God from us. Back in chapter 8, uh, three chapters earlier of the Exodus story, when Exodus was full of frogs, that was one of the plagues. Pharaoh asked Moses to please intervene and make the frogs go away. Moses consented and he said this, It will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. Certain theologians over the years have used the phrase mysterium tremendum to talk about this truth. I love that phrase. It's cool and it makes you sound smart. Mysterium tremendum. I'm giving you that phrase free of charge for you to use next time you want to end any conversation that you want to end. You're, you're at a party, a work party uh, with your spouse, and you don't want to be talking to these people. Someone comes up to you and says, you know, what you've been doing lately, just say, I've been thinking about the Mysterium Tremendum. That conversation will be over in 30 seconds. It, it speaks to how awesome, how awful, how incredible God is and how different he is from us. In part, the idea that God is not like us helps explain why sometimes God seems distant or absent. He's beyond us. He's mysterious. He's inscrutable. That's why Christians have rightly maintained over the centuries that God can only be known through revelation. God is not like us. He has to show himself to us or we will never get it. Imagine that I decide to be extraordinarily generous to a kid that I've heard about who lives in some profoundly under-resourced area. And I want to be supremely anonymous, so I give money to someone and I instruct them on pain of death that they're to give it to someone else, who's to give it to someone else, and no one knows that chain of uh, command. And finally, it gets to this child and his family, and monthly or weekly or whatever, he gets this sum of money that he has no idea where it comes from. It's just cash. 
Look, he has no way, he has no resources. He has no way of finding out who I am. I've, not only have I hidden my tracks well, he just wouldn't know how to go about doing it. He, he doesn't have the personal or the, the, the financial resources to even begin to track that down. He will never know who I am unless I go in and introduce myself to him. Like that, multiply that by 100. We're, we're not just removed from God circumstantially. We're, we're removed from him in, in every conceivable way possible. God is spirit. God is not like us, and we will not know him unless he reveals himself to us. This is why Jesus is so important in our thinking. He is, Jesus is, to quote the Apostle Paul, quote, the image of the invisible God and the fullness of God dwells in him. And to quote the author of Hebrews, Jesus says, quote, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And that's why Jesus told us in Matthew 11, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Remember we just said God is not like us, so he can only be known through self-revelation and and. And that's why it's so emotionally, don't miss this, it's so emotionally and spiritually dangerous for us to shape God in our own image. This is a mistake that maybe all of us make at certain points, but it's a huge mistake. We imagine that God is just a very, very, very good version of ourselves. This seems like a good plan to me, so of course God must agree. This, this seems like a, a really important idea, so God must value that too only perfectly. We build our plans for the future, or we adopt certain political leanings, or we tend naturally towards certain values, mostly by the force of our disposition. And we assume God must feel those same things, only he feels them perfectly. But God is not like us. Third titanic truth. God wants to be known. Now, that was hinted at in what we just said. God wants to be known. Verse 9 in the passage we just read. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. And this, this refrain has been repeated throughout the whole story so far over and over again. God has reminded Moses that this is happening so that you may know who I am. This is that revelation thing I was just talking about. One of the central themes of the whole story of Exodus, in fact, one of the central themes of the whole Bible is the self-revelation of God. Again, that's, that's what Jesus was. He was the final, penultimate chapter in that story, the revelation of God. That's why one of Jesus' best friends, uh, in John chapter 1, he says this, in the beginning was the Word, and that's, that's his metaphor for Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's also why uh, later in his life, the week he's, he was going to die, he's giving some profound lesson to his disciples, and one of them, Philip, looks at him and said, Lord, show us the Father. That would be enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the, me has seen the Father. Jesus is the penultimate self-revelation of God. And the story of Exodus, the whole story that we've been looking at, is kind of like God's elaborate introduction of himself. 
This is who I am. I'm deeply involved in your lives. I care about you. I've watched over you. I remember you. I've heard your prayers. I'm not like you, so don't be fooled by your imagination. Don't get too casual. Don't be too trivial with me, but I want to be known. I'm going to show you my character and what I can do. I'm going to show you that I'm here for you. Nice to meet you, Moses. Our God wants to be known. Titanic truth number four. In a second, I'm going to try to apply these to our Tuesday, so hold on. Titanic truth number four. God is sovereign. He rules. He's in control. The universe, all of reality is under his hand. So how does this show up in our passage? A couple little ditties. First of all, you need to know that the Egyptian god of the dead was Osiris. This is one of the Largest and most important gods in the Egyptian pantheon. He was a very important god. By the way, many scholars have suggested that the ancient Egyptians spent more more money and more time, more resources on death than any other culture in history. And Osiris's name means the mighty one, he who has sovereign power. So he had the power over life and death, He was the sovereign one. Osiris' assistant in the Egyptian pantheon was a god named Anubis. He was the god of the underworld. Anubis supervised the embalming process and guided the dead through their passage to the afterlife. But through this last, most deadly plague, the Israelites would remain untouched, proving that Anubis held no power over the Israelites. At the same time, the death of Egypt's sons would prove that Israel's God was the Lord, the sovereign one, even over life and death, even over Osiris. Also, remember, through this, God had said, I will do these things. And not only will I do these things, but then in verse 7, among the Israelites, you remember this, not a dog will bark at any man or animal, then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel, right? What he's saying is, I will go throughout the land, I'm going to take the life of every firstborn. I will do this except among my people. They will be completely undisturbed. I'm going to make a distinction. I will decide. Look, in the New Testament, The Apostle Paul stares this frightening, titanic truth right in the face, and he doesn't back away. He doesn't skirt it, and he forces us to face it as well. I want you to see this. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says this, For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on a person's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Over the years, I've been asked many times by many different people, what does this mean, Ed? How do you explain this? And most of you are smarter than I am. You'll know better than me, but I'm going to give you my best explanation for what this means. What this means is that God will have mercy on whom God has mercy. And he will have compassion 
on whom he has compassion. And it doesn't depend on my desire or effort, but it depends on God's mercy because God is sovereign. Fifth Titanic truth. God blesses his people. Remember, God is involved with us. Well, his involvement is for our good. He means us good. Verses 2 and 3 of this passage. Do I have it or do I need to look it up? Yep. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor, every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of his people. What's going on here? Well, I mean, they go to their neighbors and they ask for jewelry and they give them jewelry. Well, we don't know exactly what's going on, but let me give you some of the explanations that have been offered over the years. One, it could be that some of the Egyptians, Egyptians had begun to fear God. They obviously have this growing respect for Moses. They may have given their finery to the Israelites as an offering or maybe in identification with them or out of sympathy for their plight or just out of fear of them go away from us. Also, it could be that the Egyptians thought of this as the price of redemption. Whenever someone was finally freed from slavery in the ancient world, always they would be given wages that amounted to some compensation for their work done. Well, the Israelites had been building Egypt for 400 years. This could have been the price of redemption. Or some have suggested it could have been like a military tribute. When someone was defeated in battle in the ancient world, the conquered one would, would pay tribute to the conqueror. This could be an acknowledgement that Israel's God had conquered Pharaoh and, and Egypt's gods. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is that God blesses his people. And we hear echoes of this same idea in Psalm 37.4. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The same thing in, in Jeremiah 29, 11, and many other places. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God blesses his people. All right, pause for dramatic effect, and now uh, let's ask, so what? What does all of this mean for you and me on Tuesday? Now, let's do this quickly. One at a time. Titanic truth number one, God is involved in our lives. Let's say that together on three. One, two, three. God is involved in our lives. That means it's never hopeless, among other things. The story is never over. God is involved. No matter what's going on, God is involved in our lives. There, there's always more than meets the eye. So right now, there's stuff going on with my health, with, with mine and Diane's finances, and then there's what God is doing. Always involved, always moving, always working. There's, there's, there's stuff going on in the lives of my children, uh, decisions that they're making, uh, their relationships, their careers, and then there's, there's what God is doing, always involved, always moving. There's, there's 
There's stuff going on in your lives, the decisions you're making about marriage or, or school or career or housing. And in all of that, God is involved, God is moving, God is working. So, over and over again, Scripture testifies to us, we need to seek this out. Seek what God is doing. Jesus put it like this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All of this will be added to you as well. God is involved in our lives. Second titanic truth, God is not like us. This truth should provoke profound humility in us. The next time you're tempted to enter into one of those ridiculous Facebook arguments, please remember this truth. It should temper your opinions. As Christians, we are curious people. We don't have all the answers. God is mysterium tremendum. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't things that are true and other things that are not true. Of course that's the case. But look, you know, one of the, one of the main characters in the New Testament were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ones that had all the answers. Many of them were right answers. They had all the answers, and they completely missed the point. God is not like us. That should humble us. Third titanic truth, God wants to be known. This means knowing God is the most important work of our lives, even on Tuesday. If God wants to be known, and if what we know about him is the most important thing about us, then knowing him is the most important work we do. Think about some of our circumstances again. What we, what, what we need for school, or, or what's happening with our project at work, or upcoming important decisions about our children, or what's happening with our boyfriend or girlfriend, or, or what's happening to our retirement account right now, attending to our parents. There may be some crisis in your life right now. All of that is secondary to what we think about God. It really is. What we think about God moves and shapes all of that, just like those children being moved by the current of the ocean. Our view of God moves the activity of our soul. God wants to be known. So on Tuesday and every other day, let's dig in. Fourth titanic truth, God is sovereign. Let's say that together. One, two, three. God is sovereign. That's why the scripture, listen, that's why the scripture spends so much time dealing with themes related to surrender. If you know the Bible, think about it. It talks about laying down your life, circumcising your heart, offering your body as a living sacrifice, etc., etc. God is sovereign, so we must surrender. That's also why the Scripture spends so much time dealing with themes related to trust. Believe in Him. Have faith in Him. Trust in Him. Put your hope in Him, etc., etc. God is sovereign, so trust Him. And that's why the Scripture spends so much time dealing with themes related to seeking the Lord, inquire of the Lord, ask of the Lord, pray to the Lord, etc., etc. God is sovereign. He knows we don't. So ask Him. Ask Him what you should do next time. Ask Him what happens next. Evidently, our primary job, our primary job is not to plan or to control our primary job is to surrender, to trust, and to seek him because he's sovereign. Fifth titanic truth, God blesses his people. On three, one, two, three, God blesses his people. Look, 
let me remind you that this is a complicated truth. Some of you have come from backgrounds where you've been involved with teachers who have told you that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy all the time, all your life. And usually those, those teachers end up healthy and wealthy, and they're people not so much. God blessed the Apostle Paul by allowing what Paul called a thorn in his life for his whole life, and it never went away. And God blessed him with that by training him to trust more and more in God. Uh, King David was blessed by God when God sent him into the desert for 10 years, running for his life from King Saul. And during that time, he learned intense lessons about leadership, and he developed around him a very band of loyal warriors that would have never happened apart from that experience. But during that time, I doubt King David felt like he was being blessed. God blesses his people. But it's not always the comfort and plenty that we might regard as blessing. But it's always for our good. All right. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Our habits, our choices, our character will be pulled in the direction of what we think about God. And so, let's give some time to thinking about what God is like on Tuesday. And in that process, let's remember Jesus. He was God incarnate. He was the complete picture. There are cool ways in which this entire story that we're reading in the book of Exodus, it gets kind of fulfilled and exclamation pointed in the life and ministry of Jesus. He was the complete picture. Final note. The passage ends today with Pharaoh once again refusing to let the Israelites leave. That's about to change. Let's pray. I'm going to ask the worship team to come if they would. Father, pray today that we would uh, sense your goodness to us, your favor toward us, your blessing of us. You're so good. I, I, Lord, I pray that would swell in our minds and hearts today. And Father, with all that we know of ourselves, we bow down to all that we know of you. We surrender to your sovereignty and we trust you with what we've been worrying about, with what we've been afraid of. All of the uh, news that we hear, all of the words that we get from our friends that hurt our feelings or all of the messages we get from our doctor that frighten us or all of the 
things that we say to one another that damage our relationship, Lord, those are those all pale in comparison to our understanding of you, our, our mental image of you. By that, we are pulled and pushed. By that, our character, our souls are formed. We remember today that you're not like us. We're humbled by that, by the mysterium tremendum. We also know, Lord, that you want to be known <laughs> and you've shown yourself to us. And we're amazed that you're involved in our lives. With all the praise we can muster, we lift that up to you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. 